Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to get to come before you in your word. Thank you for just this opportunity to worship, to sing to you, to declare the praise of whom we adore. We praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you guys have some Christmas money sitting around, but I just want to let you know that uh, for $50,000, you could get a genuine Rolex watch. So I don't know if you guys you guys are in the market for that or looking for one of those. Uh, I was just kind of looking it up. I was just curious, you know, if I wanted an actual, genuine, real deal Rolex watch, what would it cost me? So $50,000, that's it, right? Not, not too expensive. Well, here's the deal. If you actually wanted a Rolex watch, but you didn't want the genuine version, you could get that watch for $100, all right? So go up to New York City, Chinatown. You can get one right off the streets there for $100 or less. And uh, here's what I learned about these watches that they're selling up there. The interesting thing is, though the Rolex watch costs $50,000 and the fake knockoff version of the Rolex watch costs about $100, the, the market for counterfeits actually exceeds the earnings of the, the market for the actual watches at $50,000, if you can believe that. Uh, probably because you're like, who's buying those at that price, right? Like the market's a little smaller for those watches, but the earnings exceeds that. And we see um, there's a, a, a big industry for counterfeits and a lot of different uh, fashion industries here. And uh, so Rolex is definitely one of them. It's one of the ones that you hear about a lot. So I just wanted to test... Um, test out to see if I'd be able to successfully sell you a fake watch. So here's the two watches. One is a fake. One is a real Rolex watch priced at $50,000. One is priced at $100. And so if you believe that the one that is the real watch is the watch on the right, raise your hand. All right. How many of you guys believe that it's the watch on, I guess the right is over here, the watch on the left? All right, so about half of you You guys aren't too bad. So I'd be able to sell some fake watches to some of you. Um, So the replica is actually the one on the right. Okay, so you can get that one for $100. Some of you just spent $50,000 on a fake watch. So sorry about that. Well, hey, uh, again, this industry is just a booming industry. And uh, if you go up to New York City, maybe you've bought some of these knockoffs. And you're like, hey, I know know it's a knockoff. I'm okay with that. Well, some of the companies that are actually producing the products that are genuine, um, it's a bit frustrating to them, right? And so one company decided that if you can't beat them, just join them. So take a look at what Diesel did.
There you go. Get you some Dizel jeans right there. Not bad. Well, hey, fakes can be tough to identify. And uh, the FBI and Secret Service, they have an entire team of people uh, that their entire purpose is to detect and determine whether or not a $100 bill is counterfeit or not. And here's the way that they do that. Here's the way that they train their people. Uh, What they do is they take all their agents and they teach them every detail and nuance of the real $100 bill. And if they become so familiar with that bill, they will be able to detect something that's fake. And as we've looked at this, uh, this book of James, and really James at the center of the book of James, is this topic of authentic faith. And what we're being, we're, we're ha- what's happening here is James is training us uh, to identify what does it look like to actually see an authentic faith. What does an authentic faith look like so that we know when we're actually living out an authentic faith faith in Jesus so that we can live it out personally and challenge one another collectively. And so that's really what this series has been about. But I think if we're honest, we would admit that it's easy to fall into this pattern of counterfeit Christianity. What I mean by that is there's been seasons of my life and periods of my life where I've settled for something less than the authentic version of my faith. And uh, the truth is, or um, much of the years growing up, um, I, I knew what it looked like to be a Christian, right? I'd been in the, the Bible classes, I'd gone to Sunday school, I'd grown up in the church. But what I had done was I had learned how to be a master of making it look like I was a Christian when I wasn't actually living that out or living up to that. And what I could do is I could, I could say the Christian types of things. I could say, say the Christian words, right, or the thing that a Christian might say in that given situation. When I was with Christian people, I knew how to act, how to carry myself. But then I'd go back with my friends, and there would be a totally different life that was being lived out. I was living a counterfeit Christianity. And a Gallup survey a few years ago was done, and it determined that 94% of Americans believe in God. claim to have made a commitment to Jesus, yet only 34% confess to a new birth type of experience, a transformation, if you will. Dallas Willard, who writes often on the topic of discipleship, he suggests these about those findings. He said, these figures are shocking when thoughtfully compared to the statistics for the same group of people for unethical behavior, crime, mental distress, family failures, addictions, financial misdealings, and the like. Of course, there are always shining exceptions, but could such a combination of profession and failure, failure really be the life and life abundantly that Jesus said that he came to give? Or have we somehow developed an, an understanding of commitment to Jesus that does not break through his living presence in our lives? Without question, it is the latter that has occurred with heart-rendering consequences. And so the question I want to ask today, and it's going to take some self-examination, it's going to take us to be really, really honest with ourselves here as we get started to say, as we pick up the word of God today, am I living that authentic kind of faith that God is calling me to? And what does it look like? So let's continue reading today, and we're going to be looking at James 2. We did finally make it to James 2 here, and uh, I'm going to retrace uh, some of our footsteps here, and then we're going to continue on. And so we're going to start here today in verse 8. So for this whole section of Scripture, I taught a few weeks ago on hearing and doing the Word of God, so living in response to the Word of God. Um, Stephen last week talked about the implications that authentic faith has on our relationships. And as we continue today, we're really going to hit sort of the, the hinge point of 
this entire book. And uh, so James continues to write, and he talks about partiality. He talks about how we relate to one another um, in authentic faith. And then he says this in verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then he says this, For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit murder, uh, do not commit adultery, also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Then he goes on to write this section. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person, person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what does authentic faith look like? Now, I think we can sort of fail on either end of the spectrum here. There is two ways that we can go to an extreme and actually miss the authentic faith in the middle. And the first extreme is that we decide that faith really is, it's an entirely based on our works and what we do. And so there is this extreme that says, you know, if I, if I can do enough of the right kinds of things, if I can check the right boxes, if I can show up in the right ways, if I can just do the right things, then my faith is actually genuine. And so James 2, what he does here, and one of the ways that that, that that becomes a challenge is because if your entire faith is built on the external, what do we do? We typically just dress up the external, right? We have the appearance of righteousness, and what it often translates into is this super spirituality that, although looks nice on the outside, on the inside, is not genuine, is not complete. And what it also does for us a lot of times is because we've worked so hard on the external, we feel like we can then go look to the brother that is not doing the things that we're doing or saying it in the way that we're saying it. And so we can look to them and then it, it manifests itself as self-righteousness, as judgment. And what James is telling us here is, hey, don't fool yourself. Listen, whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in even one point has become guilty of it. And so right off the bat, he's saying the playing field is level because it's not based on what we have done. It's based on what God has done for us. And so he says, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And so if it's all works, if that's all that it is, if it's all this external 
um, balancing act, then we're actually missing out on the thing that God really desires for us. So works without faith is denial. Works without faith is denial. Instead, it says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, uh, Jess and I, we like to eat healthy, and uh, we've gotten better over the years at eating healthy. But if there's one thing that I don't mind to not eat healthy in, it's when it comes to ice cream, all right? I, I, I love some good ice cream, and uh, anybody like ice cream eaters out there, you're like, I could tear up a bowl of ice cream. All right, so when we were eating healthy, we found this product known as Halo Top, and uh, it's, it's supposed to be ice cream. It's like, this is like ice cream, and Jess is like, hey, I got some ice cream. Like, let's enjoy some ice cream. And I start eating, and I'm like, babe, I appreciate that it says that it's ice cream, but I'm not fooled by the fact that this is not truly ice cream. And one of the reasons I know is because it says 280 calories per pint, all right? There's only 280 calories in this pint, all right? So, and as I tasted it, I wasn't fooled either. I'm like, okay, this isn't bad for what it is. There's a little post-protein thing, workout maybe. But if I'm eating ice cream, again, I'm eating ice cream. So you're not fooling me. I know, okay? I know this isn't really ice cream. Now, if I want some ice cream, I'm reaching for the good stuff, which is greater is a black raspberry chocolate chip ice cream, all right? This, you know what I'm talking about? This is the stuff that has, like, you're just digging in there, and you're just trying to unearth this giant, like, glacier of chocolate. Like, where is it? And Jess and I are just, like, racing to see who can find it, right? We're like, who can get there first, right? And uh, so sometimes if she beats me to the cart, I'm like, where did, the, where did the big piece go? Like, sometimes they just flat out rip you off, though, and you're like, wait, where was the, you know, they, it's all these little chocolate chips. But this is real ice cream, and I know because I know the taste, the substance of actual ice cream and so you're not fooling me and Jesus wasn't fooled by the appearance of righteousness either in Matthew 23 25 through 28 he sniffed out this super elevated elite spiritual class that often just puffed up their chest they prayed big fancy prayers right Um, they 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 made this list of rules of what it actually means uh, to have an authentic relationship with God, although they wouldn't even call it a relationship with God. And so they felt like it was just all a matter of these, you know, doing this, doing that. It was all a doing. And Jesus was like, listen, you're fooling yourselves. This is denial. And in Matthew 23, 25 through 28, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed, self-indulgence, blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to be people of the righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He wasn't mincing words there, was he? He wasn't fooled by this fake spirituality. And uh, if you, uh, a while back we had a dishwasher, we just got a new dishwasher, and it wasn't like really doing a good job cleaning the dishes. Some of your dishwashers work like this, so you got to run it like 16 times. You're like, what is the point? Like, I should just like hand wash these things. And so finally, like, we gave up and got a new one. But it was funny, like a lot of times we'd wash them, and there would still be like all these like crusty things like on the inside. I'm like, what is it doing? It's just washing the outside. It's just like rinsing the outside. And so the, the inside would have all this crusty stuff. And sometimes it would just collect a bunch of water. Like all the other stuff would wash into like one cup. Now imagine in this like all just nasty in there. You're like, oh, no, that's gross, right? Like what is the deal? And so imagine if you came over to my house and I 
offered you that cup to drink out of. You would look at me like I said, no, it's okay. It's, I clean the outside. You're like, well, no, I don't care about the outside. If I'm going to be drinking out of that thing, I'm not drinking all these floaties and all this crustiness, right? And so Jesus is saying it's outrageous for us to just clean the outside, right? We're not really fooling anyone. We're fooling ourselves. And so he says, first clean the inside of the cup. And I think if some of us were honest, if we really took some time, and it really does, if you want to have an inside, inside that is pure and undefiled in the way that God wants you to, it takes some self-examination to say, all right, God, show me my heart, right? Show me my heart. Show me what's really in there. Let me take an honest inventory of the heart. And so one of the difficult things is um, if we get caught into these self-righteous patterns, we can't self-identify. And so what we need to do is just like we sung in that song, right, earlier, that we need to surrender all, right? We need to open up our hearts to say uh, for God to give us that faith and impart that faith in us. And so if we were honest today, some of us would say, you know what, my heart isn't clean. It's bitter. It's angry. It's, it's harboring unforgiveness. It's, it's lustful. It's vengeful, right? It's spiteful. And if we really were able to self-examine, we would identify those things. And the question is, let's say that's the case. How do we actually clean the inside of the dish? It sounds like a great sentiment, right? How do I clean the inside? This might sound simple, but we allow Jesus to dwell there. We allow Jesus to have access to every aspect of our heart to say, all right, God, I'm letting you in. I'm surrendering in a way that you can work through my heart. So it takes self-examination, it takes surrender. And Ezekiel, he says, this is the beautiful exchange that happens as we surrender our life to Jesus, as we truly and authentically surrender our life to Jesus. Not just saying to him, hey, Jesus, let's just kind of do some sin management stuff. If you could just kind of deal with the top three on my priority list, that would be fine. No, it's not that. It's saying, hey, take the whole life, Jesus. Speak to me about me. Allow me to hear from you and really identify the things in me that you are changing. And that's for all of us. We all have things in our own heart and life that need changing. And here's what Ezekiel tells us happens as we invite Jesus to do this. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will move, remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Let me challenge a few of you to pray this prayer. God, give me a heart of flesh. God, take my old heart. Give me a new heart, God. Put a new spirit in me. Maybe for some of you this week, that just needs to be your prayer every day. God, just talk to me about me. I need you to tell me the things in me that are impure. I need you to continue to allow your grace to cover over those things. Give me a new heart, trading my heart of stone for a heart of flesh. That's God's desire for you, so that he can first clean the outside because... Works without faith is denial. On the other extreme, faith, right, this internal thing, this invisible thing, as we often say that it is, without works is dead. James is saying, listen, the invisible will be visible. The internal will come out. And so, again, faith without works is dead. He says, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. And he says, listen, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good job. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Volkswagen, a few years ago, I don't know if you remember hearing, seeing this news story uh, of Volkswagen. And Volkswagen had done what nobody else could do. And they had somehow figured out a way to create a 
clean diesel, right? One that was actually environmentally uh, friendly, that wasn't polluting the environment. And so they were like, we finally figured it out, right? And everybody else, all these other car manufacturers saying, how, in the, how did they figure out how to do that? How did they figure out how to make a car that is clean, that's a clean diesel? Well, it turns out they hadn't figured it out. What they had figured out was how to beat the emissions test. And so they figured out a way to make it look as if they were producing something that's clean when, in fact, it was polluting the environment way worse than the actual diesel cars that were on the market of the day. And so they figured out a way to cheat the system in a way to convince other people that what they were actually seeing was a clean diesel. And so they did not live up to their name. It was false advertising. It overpromised, and it ticked a lot of people off, as you can imagine, people that thought they were buying this clean car that really was polluting the environment way worse than any of the other diesel cars were. And so this was frustrating. It was this big scandal uh, in the news. If you read the scriptures, you see that in the book of Acts, there is this phrase that is used where it just says that they were called Christians first at Antioch. It says they were called Christians first at Antioch. It doesn't say that they called themselves. In other words, say, we are Christians. They didn't label themselves that way at Antioch. What didn't happen is they didn't get together with a group of people and say, all right, how do we want to market ourselves here? Like, let's, let's just, what's, you know, let's talk about our values. Let's talk about our mission, our, our business plan here. Let's get together and talk about the things that we want uh, to be. And then let's just come up with a good name. And then they were like, oh, Christians, that sounds good. Like, let's do that. That's not what happened. In fact, what happened is they were called Christians because they were living up to that name and people identified them and they're saying, there is something radically different with a group of people here in Antioch. This doesn't look like the religious establishment of the day. This is something so refreshing, so different, so outside of the norm that we got to come up with a new name for this. This is something different. They were caring for the needy in a way that no other group of people had been caring for the needy. There was no needy persons among them as we read the scriptures, right? They were breaking down cultural barriers. They were seeing past status. They were doing all of these things that the religious establishment of the day was not doing that. And so the society around them in Antioch was like, we need a new name for this radical group of people that is unlike any other group of people that we've seen in our time. And so they called them Christians, which means belonging to the party of Christ, right? So they didn't say, here's who we are, now let's go try to, that's who they were living, that's the name that they were living up to. And the question that I have for us today is, are we living up to that name? Is there, is it? Are we a group of people that is so radically different than the people around us that people just look at you and like, what is up with that guy? The way he just interacts with people and the way that he loves with people and whatever that might be, that it's just so obvious that you're like, you know what? There's something different about that guy. There's something radically different. Are we living up to that name that we are those who belong to the party of Christ, that we are part of God's holy family, that we are Christians? And when we put our faith in Jesus, the natural outgrowth should be the life that embodies the ways, the words, the works of Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. One of my favorite authors, his name is Bob Goff, he talks about how they stopped, he stopped hosting Bible studies. He's like, I just decided, you know, I'm not doing Bible studies anymore. Instead, he said, we're going to start doing Bible doings. 
There's enough Bible studies. My group, we're doing Bible doings. And so we're going to come together. We're going we're to see what the Bible says, and then we're just going to go do what the Bible says. So if the Bible says go care for the poor among you, if the Bible says be compassionate, if the Bible says we're going to find ways to just go and live out that scripture every time we come together. And one of the things we've tried to do uh, within our student ministry as a regular rhythm is to say that very thing. Like we, wanna, we want students to be able to see that. It's more than just knowing these things. It's about living these things. And so this past week, uh, we got the opportunity to go and uh, be at Mason Christian Village with a group of junior high students. Uh, a group of high school students went out to the mall and just gave out candy on Valentine's Day. And people were like, why are you giving out candy to strangers? We had the opportunity to share with them uh, about this greater love, right? And, and there was just some cool interactions and exchanges that happened there. And then with our junior high crew, which is where I was at, we hung out at Mason Christian Village with residents there. We played some games. We made some valentines. The truth is, I'm not very artistic, so I just sat at one of the tables um, and talked to a few ladies. One of the ladies' names was Jean, and the other was Ruth. And Erin uh, was hanging out there, too. She was talking to Ruth, and Ruth talked real soft. Like, you could barely hear what Ruth was saying. Like, you had to get right in there to hear her. And uh, so Erin was just so sweet just talking with her. And I'm talking with Jean. Jean's telling me all kinds of stories. And you could tell that she has become forgetful um, and, and lost a lot of her memories um, with age and dementia. And as I sit with her, I could tell that there's, there's parts of the stories that make sense, and then we would go to, like, some other place and I was like I don't and so I was just trying to listen to these stories and try to kind of piece together um, her past and uh, her relationships and it was just such an incredible um, just exchange just to get to sit there right and spend time and at one moment Aaron got up and Ruth was sitting down at the other end of the table and she just starts whispering like she had been doing before and both Gina we can't hear we're like you know, I don't, I just, I see her mouth move. I have no idea. She's not, what is she saying? You know, I'm on the other side of the table. And Jean just goes, she goes, oh, she does this sometimes. You know, she's like, Pat's not, she does this sometimes. And then she goes, she's not as bad as half of them that are here. I could tell you that. She said. <laughs> and I just, I just loved that moment. And as I was thinking, I was watching our students. And at one uh, moment, some of our junior high students took it upon themselves. I didn't even tell them to do this, but they were like, we're going to go to door to door. We got more Valentine's. We got more candy. So there's some people here in the, like the, the, the cafeteria area, but there's all these other people. They're in their rooms. We're going to go out and knock on doors and visit with people and take candy to them. So here they are. They're taking this upon themselves. And I was just so moved by that. And I just was looking around, and I thought to myself, you know, they need this. They need this kind of thing. They need to be in these environments. And then I thought to myself, this generation needs this. This generation that is so selfie-focused and self-focused, this generation is so self-absorbed, they need this. And then as I was sitting there having that thought, I just felt this sense. It was, Josh, you need this. You need this. You need to be here. And that is so true. And I, it was just a reminder to me how easy it is to get complacent. How easy it is to get caught up in my own little world that I forget about the things that I'm actually put on this planet to do as I live out the faith that I have in Jesus Christ. And it's so easy to get caught in these patterns and forget about the people that I could just sit down with that really have nothing to offer me. But you walk away with so much more as you have these exchanges, as you have these conversations. And it's true, I need this. We all need this. And one of the greatest ways to reverse complacency is through compassion. And so I just got to ask the question, when's the last time you've done that? 
When's the last time you jumped headfirst into something that you knew you wouldn't get paid for, you wouldn't get credit for, it wouldn't give you anything back? When's the last time that you breaked out of the normal rhythm of your own schedule, your own agenda, the, th- the checklist of things that you have to do in a day, and said, you know what, I'm going to go do something for somebody else. I'm going to step out in the way that Christ Jesus stepped out for me. When's the last time you broke out of your normal Sunday routine and said, I'm jumping in somewhere. Like, I want to help somewhere. These kids on the other side of the building, they don't have anything they can necessarily offer me in return. But ask any of these children's workers, and they'll tell you, man, you walk away with so much more when you break out of these cat matters of complacency and step out in compassion. And it's easy to look at the, the, some of the examples that James says here and say, hey, look at your brother. And, you know, for those of you that walk by your brother and you say, hey, man, be warm. Pe- peace to you, brother. Good luck to you. And your brother has a great need over here, and you walk past him, and you just kind of give him that greeting, and then you keep on walking. You say, man, that's a dead kind of faith. Instead, what you're to do is to step out with genuine faith and to care for that need. And it's easy to immediately go to, okay, that means the guy on the side of the road. Yes, that means the guy on the side of the road. But yes, that additionally means the kid in your hallway at school. Yes, additionally, that means that person in the workplace that maybe just grates on your nerves, but there might be a reason behind why they grate on your nerves. To take time and actually lend a listening ear to them rather than say, hey, good luck to you. Or maybe it means when that person just has something that's just such a huge burden and they share that with you and you say, cool, man, I'll pray for you on that, you know, but you know you got to run on to that next thing. Maybe it means actually pausing for a moment and stepping into that knee and say, hey, how can I be there for you? How can I come beside you? Let me pray for that right now. Is there anything else you want to share? What would it look like if we started to identify these moments? And rather than a just faith kind of thing, we saw the opposite, which is what James is really challenging us to. And that's a not faith only. That's not works only. That's what my professor, Jack Cottrell, used to say. It's not faith or works. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that works. And in verses 21 through 26, he says, he gives us two examples of that faith. He says, look at Abraham. And here's an example of faith. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son on the altar because he believed that's what obedience looked like. And so he stepped out in that kind of faith, not knowing what the result would be. And then he gives another example. He says, well, what about Rahab, who though it would have been putting herself in the line of danger, she decided that she would step out, that she would help the messengers and lead them another way, the way to safety. And then about Abraham, he says, listen, you see that faith with Abraham was active with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Faith with works is complete. It's genuine I don't know how many of you guys have been watching the Olympics. Have you ever been watching the Olympics? All right, a few of you. Um, I've, I've been watching the Olympics. The truth is, like, I get kind of tired around, like, whatever time. And so I'm hoping, like, in the window of, like, 8 to 9.30, there's something that I is not boring that I actually want to watch. And uh, so, like, sometimes I'll turn it on and be like, this is the same thing over and over again. And then sometimes I'll watch it, and I'll, like, this, this is the clueless me just saying, like, I think that's not that impressive. Like, I could do that. Like, that, like there's some things that I'm like, that's an Olympic. Like, what, what are they even doing? Like, I, I don't know. But then there's stuff you look at, and the truth is, it's all different. 
difficult. But there's stuff you look at and you're like, wow, like, no, I couldn't do that. And for me, that's snowboarding. Like, if it's snow, I'm, if, if I'm going into the half pipe on the snowboard, I'm jumping out of the gate, and I'm, I don't even know if I'm going to make it to the part where you get to the half pipe. Like, I'm probably already biting it, like, right, just, like, right outside of that. But I watch these guys, and I'm like, how did they get to the place that they could do those things? And how did they survive, like, through all of these ridiculous crashes that they had to endure to get to this place where they're still doing that today? And so I'm just, I was so impressed to get to watch um, specifically the half pipe, and, uh, you know, our, we had some great representatives, the United States did, uh, on the half pipe event with snowboarding and uh, with Chloe Kim, and then um, I, I got to watch uh, the whole uh, run of uh, Sean White, and uh, I was just thinking about as I was watching these athletes, you know, you, you work all this time, right? You spend all this time in training. You spend all this time getting red, ready for these Olympic Games, and then you have this one moment, right? You have this one moment that makes or breaks all of that. You have this one opportunity to execute or not execute. And you hear the stories, you see the devastation and the people that, man, they've trained. And some of them are even like, they're rated to be like the top person. And then they flop, they fail, they fall down, whatever. It might. I hate seeing that. I hate seeing that. But on the other side of that, it really just gives you this great sense of respect for the person that is trained, that is prepared, that has done the things they need to do. And then when the moment comes, they seize the moment, right? When the moment comes, they rise to the occasion. When the stakes are high, Sean White, for example, he didn't just know what he needed to do. He went out and he got it done. He executed. And I want to give you this picture of faith here. Because when the opportunities arise, the faith that proves gen- the, the faith uh, that is genuine will prove itself to be so, right? When the opportunities arise in life, and it might not be some grand moment, right? And the good news is we might have lots of moments in our life, but when these opportunities arise, genuine faith rises to the occasion. And that's how you can spot it, because when those moments come, you can spot genuine faith because it's going to show up and it's going to show itself. Genuine faith, for example, it chooses what's right. It doesn't choose what's easy. Genuine faith follows the king, not the crowd. Genuine faith steps up when others step out. Genuine faith chooses calling over convenience. Genuine faith chooses joy despite the circumstances. Genuine faith doesn't let fear decide its fate. Genuine faith chooses sacrifice over safety. It chooses service over selfishness. Genuine faith doesn't remain trapped in sin, but it embraces freedom. It grabs hold of the liberty that the gospel provides. Genuine faith doesn't give up. It doesn't let up. It doesn't die out. Genuine faith speaks out. It stands out. It lives out its purpose. Genuine faith relies on God's power, not its own strength. Genuine faith defends the weak. It fights for the future generations. Genuine faith raises the level of those around it. Genuine faith forgives the unforgivable. It tells the truth. It honors others. Genuine faith doesn't just talk the talk. It walks the walk. So how do you know? How do you know what genuine faith in Jesus looks like? Well, it's it's found in a life that looks like Jesus. Genuine faith in Jesus produces the fruit of Jesus. And when you see it, you won't be able to miss it because it will rise to the occasion. It will 
execute in the moment. And the truth is, as I think about this topic, this is the thing our generation needs. It, it does. It doesn't need any more knockoffs. It doesn't need any more counterfeit Christianity. It needs the people of God to step up and live up to their name to say, we are the people of God. And this is what that looks like. That's what this generation is hungry for. So I just want to close with these words from the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, listen to these words. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead even though you have to endure many trials for a little while these trials will show that your faith is genuine being tested as fire tests and purifies gold through your though your faith is far more precious than mere gold so when your faith remains strong through many trials it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed God, that's our prayer. When it seems like there's so many versions of Christianity and so many versions of faith, and sometimes this word can be so diluted, God. And the truth is, God, that as we self-examine, we can all fall into those patterns of complacency. Call us out from that. Even in these moments, God, I pray that we would be able to soften our heart. That you might speak into it. I pray for surrender. God, and I pray that through compassion, we might step out of complacency, God. That we might be the people of God in a way that is just so recognizable so refreshing, so radically different, God, that it inspires people to come running to you. We pray for that, God. We pray that more people would come to know this genuine faith. We thank you for giving us access to it, not by what we've done, God, but by what you did. Help us to live and love in response to the way that you live and love. In Jesus' name.